Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to uh, see you who are here as the, the, the state is kind of slowly reopening cautiously um, things. We ask for your patience as we figure out what it looks like to uh, keep social distancing here. We thank you for you guys who are here um, doing that, and we're going to continue to abide by what the authorities are doing, and we, and we respectfully submit to them, even if it makes awkward things. I'm glad none of you had to be hugged by Stephen this morning, um, but there might be a point in life where you would approve of that. Uh, and as encouraging as it is to see all of you who are here today, um, it reminds us of those who are not here. And so those of you who are at home, we, we thank you. Uh, we appreciate you. We are sad that you aren't here with us today. Um, but I do want to make a, a point here that as in this transition time, no one who comes is uh, by default spiritually bold, and no one who stays home is by default spiritually weak. All right. If you um, are wrestling with anxiety in this time, we want you to be cautious. We also want you to talk with us. We want to help you process this and make sure we're not making decisions strictly based off of fear, but also based off of what is wise and caring for you and for our church body. If you're at risk in any way, please don't come. We love you, and we want to spend, we'll see you in heaven, and we're excited for that. We'll talk more about that, but we don't think heaven should have you quite yet, uh, and so we want you to be wise with that, and I know there are parents with kids. My own family is here today. Um, and so uh, we are just blessed to see who's here. We long to see those who aren't here. And the good news is, is Jesus is still king and he is still Lord. And he's given us his word. And so let's submit ourselves to that this morning and then we'll continue. Yo, Lord, what a, um, an amazing blessing it is that you have given us this season of life and you have given it for us, not only as First Peter testifies, but as James testifies, that it develops the testing of our faith produces perseverance, which is required of us. And so may we not rush past seasons you've brought to us. May we not become um, overly defeated inside of them. But in all circumstances, may we see the steadfast love of God, which reaches out to those who are lost and endures those who are called. For your glory and for the good of your mission, Lord. I thank you that even as we sit with time on our hands, we are not for want for what to do. For you have called us to make much of you and to expand your glory to the nations, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on our webcams. And so, Lord, we are grateful for all that you have provided for us. We are filled with joy for what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen. So... We took a break for a, a while, a little over a month for our Easter series, but now we are back in First Peter. The big theme we're looking at is the theme of spiritual refugees. And this theme is kind of the, the tone for the text because Peter greets the churches, these churches who are scattered, and he calls them the elect exiles. They are elect in that they belong distinctly to Jesus. They have responded to his call for faith by believing the gospel. But they're also exiles. They live in a world that does not look like the world we will live in. They're called by Jesus, but the world doesn't look like Jesus. And I apologize for starting a series on exile only to watch all of us go into exile for the last month. So I'm going to be really careful about what I'm saying today for your sake. And this uh, exile is something that that assumes tension. 
It assumes that uh, there's going to be times where what Christ has done in our life stands at odds passively or actively with what we encounter in the world. And Peter is writing this letter to address that specific tension. What should we do when we feel that tension of being called exiles, chosen strangers, Peter's beginning a portion of his letter where he's going to get into the details of it. He's going to begin to walk us through what this looks like in specifics. And today, we see most clearly the point as this. Simply put, that Christians are to love one another with a distinct love. Christians are to love one another with a distinct love. A love which endures in difficult and trying times. Much like the times we find ourselves in today. And we talk about love often in the church, but we don't hold exclusive rights to it. Culture talks about love a lot. Culture loves to talk about love. But what we need to be wise about is that often culture, either secularly secularly or spiritually, often assumes things that the Bible presents. In fact, for instance, to think that God is loving is an idea championed exclusively by the Christian faith. No other religion claims to have a God who is, by nature, loving. There's gods who are kind, sympathetic, noble, pure, gods who are good. But when you're talking with a coworker, when you're talking with your roommate, and they want to create a God of their own choosing who looks like a God of love because God is love, they need to grapple with the only God who has ever claimed to be a God of love, which is the God of Scripture. And there's another kind of Judeo-Christian undertone to love that is assumed culturally, and this comes out in the golden rule. Perhaps you've heard of this. This, Jesus shares this in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, so it kind of picks up in the middle of Jesus' answer. Someone says, what's most important? Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So that's the first command. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So here we have this twofold command from Jesus. Love God, love others. And when we look at this, we typically tend to take the first command and we throw it aside. And we get to the second command. And we say, all right, now he's telling us to love others. But what does he say? He says, love others as you love yourself. And this has been kind of misinterpreted largely over lots of years. But specifically, this has kind of manifested itself in something you perhaps have seen called self-care. And this phenomenon of self-care is this. That's if we are to love others like we love ourselves, this assumes that we must first love ourselves. If you want to love others, love yourself. Love yourself and then you can love others. If you really want to emotionally, zealously, passionately engage in love, With those who are around you, you need to love yourself first. That means don't overextend yourself. Take care of yourself. Learn how to say no to specific things. As one popular TV show of the past puts it, treat yourself. you got to cater to your own needs. you got to learn how to take care of yourself. And I imagine that in this room and watching online, there are people on different sides of that spectrum. There are some people who this might be the cultural tone that is feeding them. And there are others who might say this is ridiculous. Kind of, we love by the might of our bootstraps, regardless of all the soft things that are being spoken of. 
But in light of all this, my wife was just sharing with me something that was on her Facebook this week from a friend she knows. I think proponents of self-care have actually identified a true reality. Loving other people is costly. And if we want to be emotionally and passionately loving those who are around us, we need to make sure our own hearts and our own bodies are equipped to do so. And I think for a long time, Christianity has long put on a mantle of love, which takes its notes from stoicism and not from scripture. It's an emotionless love. It's a love that only focuses on what is effective and completely robs it of any sort of emotion. And whether it's in Christianity or whether it's just culturally, This is what this idea of self-care is kind of responding against. And while I do think they've identified a right problem, I think they've turned to a wrong solution. And it's the proper solution to the right problem of love that Peter's going to address today. Peter's going to say, you do need help when it comes to loving people. You do need your heart and your body to be well cared of, but neither is the bootstraps of self-righteousness nor the pampering of self-care sufficient to love in the costly way that the Bible has called us to love. There is a distinct motivation for love in the Christian walk. And we're seeing this in two ways today in 1 Peter 1. We're going to see first that Christians are changed by love. And then we're going to see that Christians are changed for love. In other words, Peter wants us to see first how Jesus has cared for us in a way which is not only emotional, but also effective. And after showing how Jesus has cared for us, then Peter drives home this command to love. If we really want to care for ourselves, if we really want to love other people, we must see how Jesus changes the way in which we've been cared and the way in which we act in love. So let me read for us once more our text today. Just three short verses says this, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here in this short text, we have this central command. And maybe you saw it, this command in the middle. Love one another earnestly. And that's in the middle. But all around this, what Peter is doing is he's insulating this command with the reality of our salvation. Of what Christ has done for us. And this is our first point today changed by love. In calling the churches to love, he is reminding them of how they have been loved. And remember, this portion, so here's a great Bible reading tip for you. When you get to a passage like 1 Peter 1 verse 22, it's really important to remember that 1 Peter 1 verse 21 came first. And we're reading it in context, okay? And so it's, it's especially hard here because we took like a month off. But remember what Peter was doing right before this text. Look at how beginning in verse 18, he is singing the wonderful praises of the work of Jesus to redeem us. And this is in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish 
or spot. He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, we talked about this a month ago when we were in this text, but there is this profound truth in this scripture that Peter needs you to understand before he develops the rest of his argument. Why did Jesus come to obey God? We just finished Easter season. We looked at all these things Jesus did, right? We saw Jesus as the true lamb, Jesus as the true king, Jesus as the true groom, and Jesus as the true, I don't even remember the other one. I preached it. What was the other one? Bonus points, if someone remembers. The true what? Wizard? Brother, that's it. Yes, the true brother. <laughs> the lizard. Uh, you guys can go away. I'm better with an empty sanctuary. Um, all of those things. Why did he do that? Why did he die sacrificially for you? Why did he rise again eternally? Why is he seated at the right hand of God? Why was this proclaimed and written in scripture? For the sake of you. Who are you in this text? Who is the you? Those who respond with faith and hope in God. This is why Jesus has done it. Jesus has done all of this for you. The reason the triune God has set forth to redeem a broken humanity is because he is zealous for his glory, but he cannot divorce his glory from his love for his people. We know this because in Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul says this. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with God. In Psalm 69, David is crying out and asking for deliverance. And why is it that David would assume that God would deliver him? Look at the language David uses in Psalm 69, 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. To be saved which is as defined in 1 Peter 1.21, that your faith and hope is in God, is to already have been and to continually exist as lavishly loved by God. To be saved is not simply a transaction. It is the emotion of God towards you in Jesus Christ to love you. It is an overwhelming, and if we think about it, it is an awkward love. It is an uncomfortable love. It is an invasive love. It is an intimate love. It is something that makes us squirm when we really understand how much God loves us to the extent that Jesus acted for us. Peter is saying to his churches that Jesus' love is unique because Jesus' work was unique. It was not like anything else. It was not like a gold or silver or another goat. It was the perfect spotless lamb of God, the wonderful sacrifice for you. No one loves like Jesus because no one is like Jesus. That's the main point he's getting here. Everything that follows is different because Jesus is distinct. And to be distinct in Jesus is to be distinct in how we follow Jesus. It's only the love of Jesus which actually changes us. Because nothing else in this world solves our greatest problem like the love of Jesus solves our problem. Our greatest problem 
It's not COVID-19. It's not the economy. Our greatest problem is our sin that eternally separates us from God. That doesn't mean these things aren't problems. That doesn't mean these things don't hurt. But it means when we encounter that hurt as a reminder, there's a greater separation, a greater debt, and a greater problem that no work, no stimulus package, and no vaccine can ever cure. But Christ's blood has. Sin poisons us against God. Sin poisons us against each other. But in light of this, Peter points out how Jesus' love changes it. He points this out in two ways. You see that there. Jesus' love has purified us, and Jesus' love has made us to be born again. And he focuses first on the love that purifies us. This is verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So here Peter is talking about this purification, having purified, it's this past tense, it's, it's this completed action in the past. And because of your obedience to the truth, that's what he's saying, you've been purified. You've been purified by your obedience to the truth. Now before we move on, I want to spend a little time here because we miss the call to love if we miss what Peter is talking about here. Peter is not saying that you are saved because of your ability to obey God's commands. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, as we read the rest of Peter, that will become overwhelmingly clear. What he is saying is that you have been saved due to your obedience to the truth. What is the truth? The truth that Jesus did everything required to ransom us. Going back earlier in 1 Peter 1, it is the truth that the prophets wrote of Jesus, the redemption which angels long to look at, which is now proclaimed to you. The truth we see at the end of verse 25 is the gospel. You are saved not by your own works, but by your obedience to the gospel. And this communicates two important things here regarding your salvation. The first is that it's all about what Jesus did. Jesus' work to save sinners and restore us to God. You even got a flavor of that in the last part of 21. Through him are believers and dead, who God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that you. Jesus has done all the work to please God. He has done all the work to die for your sins. He has done all the work to give you his righteousness. Our salvation is about what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And yet there's a second part, isn't there? He's using this term, obedience. Jesus has done all the work. That's the truth of the gospel. But obedience to the gospel is what? When someone comes to you and proclaims good news, that's what the gospel is, you're really faced with two options. You believe the good news or you don't believe the good news. You respond to the good news by living in light of it, or you say the good news is a farce and you continue to live how you've always lived. The only obedience which saves us is the obedience of believing that Jesus' work was the only work we needed. You are responsible. Just because good news exists, just because Jesus did everything required to save sinners and ransom us back to God, does not mean that it is applied to you unless you obey it by responding to it in faith. Today, if you're a Christian, I challenge you to really think about that. Do you really trust that Jesus' work was all the work you needed to be saved? 
Is there obedience to follow that is explicit? Yes. Is there obedience that's costly, demands works? Yes. But does, do those works save you? No. You've heard it testified when we do baptisms up here. I've heard it more and more that so many times there are Christians who live their life like they know they needed Jesus, but it was kind of this like 90-10 split. Jesus would do 90% of the work, the hard work, and then we're left to do the last 10. We need to play some active role in completing that salvation process. It's kind of like we're, we're like the Mariano Rivera of our own salvation. We come in as the closer at the end, we throw a few pitches, and then we get to win the game. We're grateful for the setup, man. He did something great, but we got to do something now. But obedience to the gospel means that you are responding to Jesus doing 100% of the work. To discount Jesus' work is to actually discount Jesus' love for you. That's the point Peter's beginning to weave into this text. To trust in your works is to actually keep at arm's length Jesus' love for you. And the way you understand Jesus' love for you, being 100% relied upon his grace, and 0% relying on your works, shapes how you actually love others, doesn't it? If we trust in even 1% of our own works to purify us, to solve our problem with God, then our love for others will never be fully pure. Now, what do I mean by that? Have any of you ever been asked out to coffee by a friend you haven't seen in a while? And then they start talking about their new job and what they're selling. And you're like, I don't think I'm here just for coffee. <laughs> or your kid comes to you with great affection, so much affection, and you begin to think, what's broken? We know that love can often be impure. We have motivations completely apart from love. And if we don't understand grace, we will always have an aspect of impure motivations. We will love others because we want to keep score of our own good. It's a wonderful spiritual counting coup. I loved you and that means something to God. Thank you. It's one step closer on my 10%. We love others not because we love others, but because we think that it might look good culturally. It might make my wife think I'm a better husband. Or we refuse to love others because we fear that our love for them might encourage them, might strengthen them, and soon they might outperform me. They might be a threat to my own works. Me loving them might make me look less lovely in the long run. But to realize that we are saved by faith in the gospel, we have been purified. For what? Look what it says. For sincere brotherly love. We can simply love people because we're freed to love them as people. Because Jesus has loved us simply because he loved us and he loved his Father. The burden of performance is removed. We no longer have to see people as tools or as threats to our own salvation because Jesus gave it all. Jesus did all of it for us. We are already 100% accepted by the Father because of what Christ has done and what we have responded to by obeying this truth. Jesus takes our stinky, skunk-filled, selfish hearts and he purifies them with his own blood so that we can love out of an overflow of what Christ has done instead of trying to earn what only Christ can give. 
Salvation purifies our hearts to love people sincerely because that's how Jesus loved us. Sincerely. And gave himself up for us. Jesus' love has purified us. Secondly, Jesus' love has called us to be born again. Verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the two verbs that Peter's using here when he's talking about purifying, when he's talking about being born again, are in a a tense in Greek that's called the perfect tense. And what that means is this action is so completely, perfectly, finally completed that it bears ramifications indefinitely into the future. You can't outrun what has been completed. And you think of this, here we are in COVID-19. We understand this because we're going to go and we're going to wipe down a surface. We're going to wash our hands. We're going to purify ourselves. And what do we need to do in 15 minutes? We need to wash our hands again. We need to repurify. We need to re-scrub. But what is happening here in the gospel is happening so perfectly at one specific time that we don't need to add to it. You have been purified finally, fully, and completely by the blood of the Lamb. But also you have been born again. Not by what Peter says is perishable seed, but by an imperishable seed. We are able to love one another because we have been reborn to love one another. Our spiritual anatomy, our new heart, is able to love because it is just that, a new heart. And the nature of this conversion, this total transformation, is not in accordance with the world, but it's in accordance with God himself. We are reborn, not in belonging to the world, but in belonging to God. And just like how your roommates, or your kids, or you as a kid, grow up in the house of another, you begin to learn what it looks like to see, to experience, and to live out that distinct love. It slowly, it comes in fits and burts. Fits and burts? Fits and spurts? But it comes. Why? Because we've been changed by the family that we've been a part of. We are being changed for a distinct love, And again, this isn't because we petitioned it or we earned it. This rebirth process is not because you were awesome. This rebirth process is because of the wonderful power of the word of God. This is what Peter talks about when he begins to quote from Isaiah 40 in verse 24. For all flesh is like the grass, and its glory, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, if you've been in the church for a period of time, this this text, verse 23 or 24, is often used to talk about the sufficiency and the effectiveness of Scripture. And it's true that we should be encouraged by that. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is effective. But this text isn't necessarily about the whole scope of Scripture. And we know this because Peter tells us what the word is. In verse 25, he says, the word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel which was preached to you. The good news which you have heard. I don't think Peter meant this passage in verse 23 through 25 to be primarily about the sufficiency of Scripture. I think he meant it to be about the enduring power of the word of God that saves you and how that relates to the way we love one another. In fact, the context of Isaiah chapter 40 
which Peter's quoting here, is a song of comfort. God's people have just heard that their sins are going to be punished, that there will be dark days ahead in Israel. But here the prophet holds out to them the promise of God's word, the promise of hope, that even though nations are going to rise up and judge them, those nations won't endure. What will endure is the promise of God's word, the hope in hopeless times. There is something apart from our circumstances which they can hope in, which they continue to worship in, which they can love one another in. You see, first, first Peter, this Peter, is writing to a church in exile. He's writing to a church where perhaps just like us, it's difficult to meet. They're writing to a church which might think that maybe they're believing the wrong thing in the early stages of church life. Why is it that other churches are thriving? Pagan churches are thriving. Ours seems meek and meager. Why is it that my friends are easily accepted in the workplace, but I'm finding difficulty? And he says, this eternal word that saves you is the same eternal word which gives you the ability to love others even when hard time comes. This gives you the hope of what will endure. If the root of our love is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, the ultimate word which was preached to you, and if the hope of what Jesus has done for us never changes, everything else changes, this doesn't change, then even in moments of hardship, even in moments of disease and sickness and famine and persecution and whatever church history can throw at us, Christians rise to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. There's hope. There's hope that God has given you what you need to love those who are around you. Make no mistake, it's costly. Have you ever? I have. I do it with my kids. I do it with my wife. I do it with some of you. I say, can I really love this person in circumstance blank? Is it worth my time to love this person under these circumstances? And the Bible's answer is, yes! Yes, you are able. Why? Because look at what Jesus has done for you. He has equipped you as a new person. He has purified you. He has made you born again. He has robed you in the wonderful, eternal working of God's word to go forth in love even when it seems hard. I love the final battle scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan storms the castle of the White Witch where she has kept the Narnians who she's turned into stone. And Aslan goes up to them and he breathes his lion breath on them, and one by one, each of them are turned back into a person. The stone is melted away. And what do they do? When the breath of life has changed them, they run to the battle to fight with their brothers. Jesus' breath of life awakens us for a love that you cannot muster on your own. To find the proper motivation to love people in hard times is to see how Jesus has loved you when you were yet an enemy. Finding the best care for yourself is to submit your own soul to the gospel of a king who cared for you like this. Look at what he's done for you. You are not alone. It's not up to your might. It's not up to the circumstances of this world. Christ has done it. Because Jesus has cared for us perfectly in himself, we have the infinite ability to love others 
even if it is mediated through our finite frame. And this is the second point today. Not only are we changed by love, but we are changed for love. Look at verse 22 through 25 again. Having purified your soul by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Why has Jesus saved us? Read the New Testament, we can read all sorts of reasons. But why here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why did Jesus save you? Why does, what is the point Peter's making? He has saved you for love. That you might, being loved by God, sincerely love those who are around you. Specifically, those who are in the household of faith. And not just love them, to love them earnestly, from a pure heart. And he is talking about one another here in the context of the church. He's talking about y'all in here. He's not talking about romantic love. He's not specifically talking about evangelistic outside the church love. Not that those loves are unimportant and not addressed in scripture, but here he is showing the necessity of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is saying that it is an immediate application of your salvation that you would respond like this. It is a necessity It is essential to understand that being saved by love commissions you for love. And I admit, we all wrestle with this in different ways, myself included. I don't wrestle with understanding the command to love one another. I see it all over in the epistles. But what I do wrestle with is probably what any of you who are introverted wrestle with, and that is letting my brothers and sisters know that I love them. I, on a weekly basis, work through part of our membership directory. I call, text, email some of you. And uh, when I'm on the phone with somebody, I feel this urge because I have these scriptures like in the back of my mind to conclude it by saying, I love you. It's so weird to even say it here to you, like protected by all of this, to just say, I love you. And most of the time, I don't say it, or I try to distance it by making it plural, like, we love you. Like, not just me, that would be weird. <laughs> but all of us, corporate, my, uh, my wife's grandfather, when she would say that, he'd always go, what, you got a turd in your pocket? So <laughs> that's not on my script. But we, <laughs> we, try to, we try to distance ourselves from the intimacy of that, don't we? If someone came up to you today, maybe they have already, good, good on them, but said, man, I love you. It is so good to see you. How would you respond? Why is it we wrestle with this so much? Perhaps it's that we have begun to misunderstand what the church is and what Peter is restoring to the church. The church is not simply a means for biblical content to go out. The church is not where you come together to have your preferences met. The church is where one another's just like you, gather from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of walks of life together to worship God through the gospel and to love one another. Now listen to this. The more we make church about our personal preferences, the less we will be able to love others as the church. 
The more we personalize the church by our preferences, the less we will be able to love one another as the church. But this other-oriented love is essential. It must show up because it's tied to what Christ has done. To be changed by Christ is to now love like Christ. And what I love about this is we can talk about believing the gospel. We recite the Apostles' Creed here. We believe the gospel. But what the command to love one another does is actually calls us to participate in the gospel. You cannot follow the command to love one another and sit on the sideline. It demands us to live out of the overflow of what Christ has already done. It is a participation in what Jesus has freed us for. And there are two aspects of this love which we need to understand here in closing. The first is that our love is rooted in the gospel itself. Our love is rooted in the gospel itself. Do you notice the permanence that Peter has painted here? We've been purified by faith, so love sincerely. You've been born again with an eternal word of the gospel so you might be earnest and enduring in love. The basis for Christian love is not circumstantial issues, but the objective truth of the gospel. And this idea of objective truth shaping our love has ramifications both in how we view suffering and how we view discipleship. And when it comes to suffering, Peter here says that, you, uh, that, that when you, you're going to encounter seasons, right? It's written to this tension. We're in it right now, in our own lives and the lives of others, where we are sorrowful, we're suffering, we're frustrated, we feel empty, drained. And in those times, it is tempting to go to the well of self-care and to first care for ourselves. But Peter here says that you must move towards others, and you must trust Not that you could do it by the bootstraps of your own heart, but that Christ has cared for you. That he has given you what you need to go forward. This doesn't mean that a good cup of coffee and a nice nap is meaningless when it comes to caring for others. But if your ability to love others in difficult times stems from your own ability to create a well of satisfaction, you will forever be searching to be filled. Why? Because you can't self-care for yourself sufficiently. You can't. You cannot motivate yourself to serve God. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. We need his help. What hope do you have in hard times, even when you don't know what to offer? Don't we have that? Someone comes to us in need and we're like, yeah, we have Jesus. We have the good news of what he's done. Then that person too can experience the love of this Jesus in this hard time. How do we know that? Because we have experienced it. And how do you know that someone will pursue you when you are in need? Because you know that you will pursue others when they are in need. That's the hope we have as the church. Self-care isn't pampering oneself with the pleasures of the flesh. But self-care is learning to pamper ourselves in the grace which Christ has given. Do you care for yourself like this? Do you run to this well to see how Christ has loved you? And do you drink deeply and then pour yourself out as a drink offering to those who are around you? Jesus' love shapes how we suffer. But secondly, as it relates to discipleship, in our relationships to our brothers and sisters in Christ, this living and abiding word should be the basis of our love for one another. Uh, There was something terrible which has happened in my marriage. And what happened was, when Sarah and I were dating, I loved country music and board games. And when we stopped dating and got married, I didn't like country music and board games. And it's as simple to boil down as that I no longer needed those things. 
I had a wife. I don't need to act like the music is good. I don't need to act like board games are entertaining. I have a wife now. And so this brings still enduring tension into our home. Uh, and uh, if my wife is watching right now, I'll play cribbage with you if you ever want to play cribbage with me, but you don't. Um, and so there brings this moment of tension, but we sit here and we laugh at it. Why? Because it's not, a, it's not an immense crisis in our marriage. Because to have a marriage based on board games and country music is just a terrible first step. It's based on this enduring covenant love. But we think about our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. How many of those revolve exclusively around hobbies, shared interests, life stages, or even where you go to church? But that's as far as it goes. Because the truth is, hobbies change. Life stages develop. Relationships morph. But if it's the gospel that it's the basis of our friendship and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it will endure even when everything else changes. When was the last time you asked someone in your community group or in your row at church from a six-foot distance, how's your soul? How's your heart doing in all of this? As awkward as it is to say I love you, sometimes it's more awkward to talk like I love you. But to do that forces us to wrestle with this thing that endures into all of the time. If we are changed for love, and if our love is rooted in something outside of these circumstances, they're rooted in our salvation in Jesus Christ, which means this. You can have hope. You single college students, when friends get married, they're not dead to you. You parents, when you are discipling people who don't have kids or single college students, you can love them. Why? Because it's not based in their circumstances. It's based in what Christ has done. It's based in the gospel itself. And this leads us, when we begin to see how the gospel moves us from fluidity to eternality, we see our second point today, or our second point of application, that our love has eternal value. Loving others will be hard, it will be costly, it will be inconvenient, it will be tearful, but it will never be wasted. Your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ will never be wasted. Why? Because to love those who are truly our brothers and sisters in Christ is to love those who, like you, will endure eternally. We have a tree in our backyard, a big apple tree. I don't know how to prune trees, and so the apple tree is giant. It makes terrible apples, but it's really pretty to look at when it blooms. And so there's buds on the tree right now, and it reminded me of last year when it bloomed, like my whole backyard was just full of this massive tree and its white flowers. And when you stand in the kitchen, look out, all you see are the flowers. And it bloomed one day, and I mowed the lawn, and I did the weed eating, and it looked so perfect. And then the next day, you might remember it, we had like the windiest windstorm of all spring. And just like that, <laughs> no flowers. They're gone. Paul's making a point here that all of the things we love, even if they are good things, beautiful things, things given to us by God, all the things of this world, just like those flowers, will go away. But those who are saved have this eternal, living and abiding word inside of them. It has cloaked them outside the clutches of time and placed them in the eternal graces of Jesus Christ. Remember what... He, Peter said earlier in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We hedge our bets. We try to make wise investments. We don't want to get burned. But here, Peter is showing us an investment that we can make with eternal security. All of the things we love in this world will fade except for those who are made new by the never-fading word of Jesus. And so we don't have to be cautious with our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can take bold risks for the gospel because we understand that it will bear eternal rewards. Does this mean that people won't ever walk away from the faith? No. Will it still grieve us when that happens? Yes. Will people we love move away? Yes. Will people we love die long before we want them to? Yes. But does this inhibit our ability to love them? No. Because this is what our salvation has purchased for us. Vulnerability robed in the security of grace. To love people out in an overflow of the gospel is to take a bold step to trust God with your emotions. But to trust that he is trustworthy with them because he has showed us his trust in his own emotion. He has acted towards us in love and it has worked out only for our favor on the cross. So my question for you is, have you been saved by this love? Have you realized that Jesus has done 100% of the work that the greatest news is being loved by his completed sacrifice and responding in faith. And if you are, if you've responded to that, let's throw aside portraits of love which are not distinct. Throw aside portraits of love which are less than biblical and motivations which are less than effective. And let us put on what Christ has done for us. And may we be a church distinct in costly love for one another because we were saved by the costly love of another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you make us a church that practices this well. That even in the unique circumstances of our gathering, that sincere, earnest, brotherly love flows freely because the gospel flows freely. Lord, I pray that you give us love that reaches across in effort that mere circumstances and familiarity does not but reaches out with the arms of faith, grasping the goodness of the gospel that is, our, is in our friends and our fellow church members, and may we love them in a sincere and enduring way. Lord, I pray that in our love we remind each other of the eternality of the gospel and the reward which is laid up for us in heaven, that this is not wasted, but this is the wonderful work of the church while we labor for our final reward. We pray this in your name. Amen.